Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. I um, would like us to start off, please, if you if you wouldn't mind, with just a quick summary of your novel of the plot um, of Pigeon English. Well, hi, Rhiannon. And first of all, thank you for inviting me to take part in this. It's a first for me, and I'm looking forward to having a, a really interesting virtual remote conversation. I'm used to talking to groups of maybe 100, 200 plus, even entire year groups when I come and visit the various Harris Academies. So this is very much uh, uh, a leap into the unknown for me, but I'll try to make it as kind of enjoyable and be as helpful to you as I possibly can. Um, so I'll start, yes, I guess I'm trying to think back to when it was that I began writing Pigeon English. I think it was about 2008, perhaps. And the main kind of germ of inspiration came from the case of Damilola Taylor, which was a good few years before that point, the year 2000 or 2001, wasn't it? And um, I just remember, so for anyone who doesn't know, Damilola Taylor was uh, a young student from Nigeria who had arrived in this country and settled on uh, an estate in Peckham. He'd come over here with his father. Uh, they were actually looking for medical treatment for his sister. That was the main reason for them coming over to this country in the first place. And he was only here for 10 weeks before he was murdered. Um, a couple of older lads took a disliking to him simply because he was different. You know, he had a different accent to them. He was a sensitive and quiet boy and kind of stood out from, from the rest of the estate in, in various ways. And one day he was walking home from school. He was attacked by a couple of older kids and they stabbed him in the leg with a, a piece of broken glass and he died. And apart from the case of Stephen Lawrence, which had been a, a couple of years before that, this was our first exposure, I guess, to this idea of, of knife crime or of child on child violence. Mm -hmm. It was the first case of that kind to certainly excite a, a nationwide outpouring of grief and outrage. And I was one of those people watching the reports of this on the news who was grief stricken and outraged by it. Um, and I guess the reasons for that were, were many. I certainly recognised people like Damilola amongst my friends and people that I'd known in childhood and people that I'd grown up with. I recognised the estate as one that, that felt very similar to where I was born and raised on an estate called Marsh Farm in Luton. Um, I recognised some of the the backstory to Damilola's arrival in this country. Many of my friends had been through the same journey. They had immigrated here from overseas in search of a better life and in search of uh, more opportunities. And the idea that this kid, who in the reports was portrayed as such a kind of exceptional boy in lots of ways, he was very intelligent, he was very sensitive, um, in the process of the reporting, things came out about him, which just made me fall in love with him. Um, one of the essays that he wrote at school was uh, shown on the news. And in that essay, he spoke about his, his aspirations to become a doctor and to travel the world and heal people. 
Um, so there was something about this kid, about his potential to become an exceptional human being. And the fact that that potential was taken away from him in such a, a senseless manner, it really struck me. And it immediately became something I was obsessed with, not just as a human being, but it also in terms of wanting to write about it, wanting to make sense of my response to that story through fiction. And I'd wanted to be a, a, an author from the age of six, believe it or not. I mean, um, I remember my grandparents gave me a copy of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer for my sixth birthday. And from that moment on, pretty much my ambition was to become a writer. But you're always kind of searching for that first story to tell. And for me, uh, that story needed to feel very personal and it needed to touch on things that I, I felt very deeply. And with Damilola's story, I found that reason to, to pick up a pen. Um, I wanted to, I guess, in some ways, make sense of, of his case and, and uh, what kind of societal factors can lead to that kind of crime. Uh, at the same time, I knew I would be therefore making sense of some of the forces that were around me growing up on my estate, you know, some of those issues that affected me and my family and my friends that I'd never really analysed too deeply or thought too deeply about. I wanted to kind of get my thoughts about those down on paper as well. So Pigeon English became for me a way to, in some ways, pay tribute to Damilola, who as I say, reminded me of so many of the kids I grew up with. It was also a way for me to pay tribute to my hometown, my community, uh, a place that I felt was very neglected in fiction and still is to a certain extent. I mean, growing up and being a voracious reader, I only remember really coming across a book that spoke about people like me or that reflected a, a, an experience like mine when I opened up um, Paddy Clark, Ha 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 by uh, Roddy Doyle. Yep. And that was set on a council estate in Northern Dublin. Uh, it was released in the 90s, the early 90s. Up until that point, I don't remember really reading about a place or a community or a set of characters that reminded me of myself or of the people I knew. Um, so I wanted to portray that kind of world as realistically as I could uh, with all its ups and downs, all its darkness, all its light. Um, and also, as I say, pay some kind of tribute to Damilola, put myself into his shoes and um, try and learn what it might have been like and felt like to be a boy coming from uh, a different country with a very different culture arriving somewhere for the first time, not knowing the rules, not knowing how anything works, um, and kind of having to embed in a completely different culture to your own, uh, to fit in, to make friends, to stay safe, to learn where you can go and where you can't. At the same time, in the book, Harry is 11 years old, so he's around the same age as Damilola was. So at that time in our lives, obviously, we're we're figuring out what kind of 
people we want to be or are going to become. You know, it's we're on the cusp of adolescence. We're we're working out, you know, what what things are important to us in life. We're working out our, I guess, responses to the world around us. So it was a really interesting age to write about as well. Yeah, thank you for that. So it it, it sounds as though it's come from both a place of tribute and an exploration of your own youth. Um, and yeah. when you when you um, you mentioned when you were describing Damalola Taylor or um, the impression that you got 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 of him um, from from the news, etc. Um, you you were talking about how he was so aspirational, so thoughtful, and I really see that in Harry. Um, uh, the protagonist Harry does seem really um, thoughtful, clever, and quite quite innocent um, in its different meanings. So, mm. what did you want us perhaps to to learn through him? Um, you've said he represents or or is is uh, modelled on Damalola Taylor, but in terms of a universal uh, message, perhaps from Harry, is there anything um, else in particular that you wanted to share about him? Well, you certainly hit on some of his his main kind of. Uh, characteristics, those of being very sensitive, thoughtful, uh, exuberant, positive of spirit, very curious about the world around him, very curious about the new and the novel. You know, he's he's very much an explorer. He um, opens his, his arms and his heart out wide to new people, new experiences, new knowledge. And I guess that naivety can work against him throughout the book. He finds himself uh, exposed to dangers and temptations that if he was a little bit more streetwise and a little bit more circumspect, he might be able to avoid. Yeah. But um, the flip side of that is that in his approach to life, being so open and being so positive and generous of spirit, I think he... He does provide, in some ways, a, a model for the reader. A, a, he provided a model for me, even as I was writing him. You know, I'd look back on what I was like at his age, and I was—I'd like to think I had some of those similar qualities. I like to think that I was uh, quite a positive spirit. But you know, over here we have to grow up so quickly, and kids are are, are forced to enact adulthood before they're quite ready to uh, because of the dangers that they face on a daily basis and because of the need to stay safe. So kids are forever walking this tightrope between innocence and experience. And for me, Harry, because he's come from a different country where his exposure to those kinds of forces isn't so acute, he more often than not falls on the side of innocence. And I guess the message there is if we can just hold on to our childhood innocence, wonder, curiosity for as long as we possibly can, then we can perhaps live a life that is more open to new experiences, is more open to the idea that, you know, we're all in this together. Society at large, it, it it's forever bombarding us with this message that we're we should be in competition with each other. That you know, capitalism teaches us to be rivals to each other for space, for resources, for attention, for all of those things. 
And Harry's viewpoint is a little different. He's more, you know, we're all in this together. Everyone's a friend. Let's work together. Let's um, let's just have fun together in its simplest way. You know, let's hang on to our our childhood for as long as we can. And perhaps that's, if any, that's the message that I was trying to put across. Yes. If we do that, if we hang on to our innocence and our wonder and our curiosity, we can live potentially a, a kinder life, a, a more fulfilling life, and we can spread that kindness around and everyone benefits. It's, you know, that that ripple effect mm. may, may not just be an optimistic daydream. It may be something that, that we can enact if as, as individuals we all, you know, behave with a, as much kindness and curiosity as we possibly can yeah absolutely and um one of my next questions was going to be do you see your novel as a call to action against violence and crime and and you've you've touched upon that that there talking about this but this balance between innocence and experience and clinging hold of that innocence just mm. thinking about the opening where we where we where we see just immediately um a murder scene um and so quite clearly we're the open or we see the themes of youth violence and crime mm. um so how does how does that kind of opening challenge harry's innocence how does that kind of take him on a journey of um losing that innocence if you like well this is something he's never experienced before and this idea to him that a child potentially you know only a couple of years older than himself has been killed and you know the common knowledge or the assumption is that he's been killed by another kid on the estate this idea is is brand new to harry and he's kind of it blows his mind mm -hmm. you know he he has not been forced to to confront before this idea that a kid can kill another kid and it it's it so much rocks his worldview and his sense of what's right and what's possible and what's just that he immediately sets out to kind of unbreak the world you know this this thing that's happened this murder at the beginning of the book has completely shattered his world and his assumptions in many ways and his then uh going out to almost become a detective almost try and and uh, hunt down the, the perpetrators of this crime and bring them to justice is very much his, again, very naive attempt to unbreak the world and make it make sense to him again. But of course, along the way, he, as you say, necessarily, he loses a lot of his innocence because he's all of a sudden confronted with ideas that uh, were not part of his experience until very recently and he has to kind of recalibrate his opinions and, and his assumptions on what the world is how it's run what makes it the way it is what part people his age have to play in that you know what responsibilities people his age have to themselves and to others uh, what dangers are out there dangers that uh, prior to that his mother did a very good job of isolating uh, insulating him from mm. so he has to confront all of these brand new ideas for the very very first time and, and it, it does chip away at his his innocence and throughout the book you see his childhood kind of gradually being eroded and it's actually from a distance quite a heartbreaking thing to to observe 
how, you know, he goes from being this very happy-go-lucky, innocent kid to by the end, as he gets deeper into the, his investigation and uh, his thoughts and feelings about what has happened become, you know, more embedded in who he is. By the end, he's not a kid anymore. By the end, you know, something has changed and something has been stolen from him. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yes. Yeah. So- thinking of that idea of that erosion of childhood is there a is there a comment perhaps on the people that we surround ourselves with who contribute to that I'm just thinking of your characterization of Crossfire Jordan and Killer which is a lot uh, which is so different from how you initially characterized Harry um so you know to what to what extent perhaps do you think our society um or the people that we put ourselves around or our place near us um has an impact on our on our character and our, on our behaviours? Well, I think the, the main contrast between Harry and a, a lot of those other kids that he encounters is that Harry has a very settled home life. He has you know, a mother and a father that are together and both are very present in terms of fostering within him uh, a sense of a value system and, and a faith and a sense of responsibility to others. And unfortunately, where he winds up living, kids aren't as often lucky enough to have that structure and that support around them. Um, so, you know, we, we don't learn too much about the, the home life and the, and the family life of a lot of the other child characters. What, what I do reveal is more often than not, they have one parent absent or they, they have home situations which are compromised by various issues and problems, be it drug abuse, be it alcoholism, be it uh, domestic abuse, all of those kinds of things. And, you know, that means that unlike Harry, these kids are very much left to their own devices in terms of almost the responsibility is on them to formulate their own value system. And, you know, that's that's an impossible ask for somebody who's 12, 13, 14, 15 to, you know, when you, you're faced with all these other burdens living where they are, you know, the, it's very important that they make the right friends, that they, they know their rules of engagement and they know where it's safe to go and where it's not. All of those things, you know, they're dealing on a daily basis with, in many ways, uh, survival mm. at its most basic and then to ask these kids to kind of be their own best counsel you know to be their own um, advisors when it comes to making those everyday moral decisions which we all have to make um, it's a tough ask and it's 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 something that I guess our society asks of its children too much mm. um, Harry is from a society where there's very much an extended sense of community, extended families, uh, extended family units, uh, grandparents still live at home. Um, there could be four generations of the same family living in the same household. And there's, you know, that that network is there from day one. And that's not something that we have as much of here. So, you know, a lot of times we're, we're asking our young people to kind of decide for themselves what's best for them in the absence of 
consistent advice or support from those that should be responsible for them. And, you know, you, you can tell just how hard a job that is from some of the mistakes that these kids make. And I'm yeah. I'm conscious that, you know, the book very much, it, it sees the other characters through Harry's quite narrow gaze and through the filter of his own observations and his own experience. So to him, you know, that the problems that these other characters are facing are simplified and it, it as a reader, I'm hoping that, you know, we have more uh, wisdom and we're more aware of the wider picture so that we don't look at these other kids as as villains or, or bad guys purely. You know, they themselves are also victims of their environment and their circumstance. And I guess that's the point that I try to make. Yeah, absolutely. I've had a lot of students say, well, you know, are we supposed to hate hate those characters, you know, Killer and Crossfire? But but maybe there is a sense of um, you trying to humanise them and get us to understand their position too um, as well. And maybe, maybe, yeah, yeah, I think I think I can see that. Um, so we've seen a, a lot and know that um, inaction and silence um, perpetuate hate and ingrained prejudices. And we can see that at the moment with the current um, Black Lives Movement. Just wondering um, about your thoughts um, you know, we can on, on that. We can see through characters like Aunt Sonia with her situation with Julius. Mm -hmm. And even in the fact that it only really seems to be Harry and Dean who are alone in investigating the murder of, of the boy at the start of their novel. Mm. Um, do you think there's a deliberate focus um, from you on the dangers of inaction and, and the passivity of society? Yeah, that's definitely something I, I wanted to touch on on the book. This idea that, you know, if we look at the, the Delphama state as it, in some way a microcosm of wider society, it's a place that the criminal justice system seems to have abandoned um, there doesn't seem to be a great deal of, of government investment in these places. There doesn't seem to be uh, a great deal of, I guess, um, active investment emotionally in wanting to see places like this prosper. Um, so that's a societal inaction, isn't it? Yeah. And then on an individual level, Perhaps a lot of these characters in, in the book have just become so desensitised to, to what's going on mm. and have become so used to being ignored, neglected, to their voices going unheard, that there is a certain amount of, I guess, resignation that creeps in. Uh, when, when you live somewhere that is consistently neglected and... and when you are consistently, I guess, uh, underestimated by wider society, you begin to accept that nobody's on your side, nobody's going to listen to you, nobody has your best interests at heart, so it becomes every man for themselves. It is quite easy for that dog-eat-dog -dog mentality to, to then creep in. Mm. Um, and we see in the book the... I guess, the negative effects of that way of thinking. And you mentioned Black Lives Matter, and the last couple of weeks have been a very interesting time in terms of, I think we now have, for perhaps the first time in, in decades, a real opportunity to 
to reflect on where we've gone as a society and what we can do to turn things around. You know, sometimes a flashpoint is required before real change can be enacted. And uh, sometimes, you know, you, you have to light a fire under people to get them to to look at the world in, in a way which previously might have been too uncomfortable for them. So um, I'm, I'm really trying to be optimistic yeah. uh, in hoping that, that this period represents the beginning of something new, a turning point. Um, because we've seen, you know, with what's going on with the protests and with what's going on with the toppling of statues, that if we actually do take individual action and we kind of pass on that way of thinking to others, we can actually achieve things. We can, we can achieve palpable change. It can be from something as small as an abhorrent statue being chucked into a river to something as potentially life-changing for decades to come as the Minnesotan Police Department being disbanded and, and you know, uh, a, a new uh, structure rising in its place that does things in a different way. So uh, we have the examples of, of what can happen if we do act all around us right now. So it's up to us, I, I, I guess, to take heart from that and, and see what we can do to, to contribute to that. Indeed, yeah, that idea of the call to action. Um, and um, and what, what place do you see education and, and tech such as Pigeon English perhaps having in that, um, in that change um, that is certainly stirring? Well, it, it's obviously, it's been obvious for a long time that, that the curriculum has required an overhaul to, to be more representative of society as it is now to represent a, a diversity of voices, to, to properly reflect who we are as a nation. And um, I can only speak from personal experience when it comes to Pigeon English and, and the conversations I have when I go into schools to talk about it. And invariably, the young people who have, have studied the book, it's the first time for, for most of them that they've been able to study a book in which they recognize themselves or recognize the world as 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 they live it mm. and for a lot of them that can be revelatory you know for a lot of them it's like wow you've seen me mm. and we can't underestimate the power of that feeling of being seen and being represented and it, it's only my hope that the more books arrive onto the curriculum that that can achieve that same thing of making young people feel that they're being seen and being listened to because if if you are invisible within the pages of the books you're being asked to study mm. there's a danger that you start to feel like you're invisible to wider society um so you know whatever we can do to to promote that feeling of being seen has got to be a good thing let's uh, get more books onto the curriculum that that can provide young readers with that experience of being seen absolutely and and from a the experience of someone teaching this um to a group of year 11s um they yeah just their faces um so different um when they're in the classroom and they're kind of racing through the text um oh. indeed it's about seeing themselves in a text i think that's important mm. um thinking um 
on the idea, um, I just wanted to touch upon and, and, and see your comments on, um, you know, there are obvious, obvious difficulties from writing from the perspective of a child as an adult and, and also on this theme of race, of writing from the perspective of an immigrant from Ghana as a, as a white man. So just wanted, um, yeah, to see if you had any comments on perhaps the challenges of assuming a different persona um, to your own when writing um, and if there are any attempts to overcome these, if, if indeed those challenges can be overcome? Well, first of all, I think I, I chose not to write the book for seven or eight years. From my initial response, you know, being confronted with Damilola's case and being very much moved and angered and saddened by that and, and wanting very much to explore that case in writing, I then spent a good seven or eight years not putting pen to paper because I just knew that I wasn't necessarily going to be the best placed and best qualified person to write that story. Um, I, I, I just expected that someone else would come along who would have a closer connection to that story, who had experienced immigration or racism or that kind of violence themselves um, that would be better placed to write a fictional response to that story mm. and six seven eight years passed by and still no no book had emerged that dealt with that subject and I guess at, at one point I, I can't really remember exactly when it was but at, but at one point I, I just I felt that I felt a responsibility that if nobody else was going to tackle this story, I couldn't, I couldn't abide the idea that this story wouldn't get out there. So I, I guess I convinced myself that I had enough of a, I guess, knowledge of the community I was talking about. I had enough of an insight into the community I would be writing about that. I would make a start and, and, and see, just see where it went. Um, I was still living on the estate when I wrote the book, which was a very diverse, multiracial place. Uh, growing up, you know, I had best friends from every corner of the globe. And as an, an adult, I still had many friends from uh, West African communities. There was a, a growing Ghanaian community moving into my area at that time that I decided to start writing as well. So I befriended a few people and I had I had them to, I guess, bounce ideas off and to go to for advice. Um, I guess I got to a point where I felt I would be able to tackle the subject with enough respect mm -hmm. that it would be that my version of this story would be better than no version at all. Mm -hmm. And, I, and throughout the writing process, I was very careful in terms of the people I spoke to, the research I did, the thoughts that I put into those characters, some of whom represented people I knew, some of whom didn't. Uh, all along the way, you know, I was I was very circumspect in my approach and I asked myself difficult questions and I demanded of demanded of myself a certain amount of of rigor in terms of what I was trying to depict. And I just hoped that that would be enough. I, I, I hoped that by the end that had allowed me to 
produce something that was respectful and authentic enough. Yeah, indeed, so a response to a story that that really needed to be told then. Mm. Um, just to pick up on a, a, a different theme, really, um, one of my students said that their favourite part of the novel is where Harry and Lydia leave their prints in the wet cement. And I, I do agree, it's a really fun moment. And I think it hints at a closeness in their relationship that we might have doubted before. Um, we've talked a bit already today about the importance of family. Um, I just wanted to to know what you thought of 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 this family, this scene, and what what that scene in particular in particular says about the nature of family. Well, that scene was was one of many in the book that was very much inspired by real life. In terms of, I was out on the estate one day walking walking back from the shops and. Uh, I came across this tiny set of footprints mm. in the concrete and uh, I immediately had a vision of, of the scene, as you describe it, of, of Harry and Lydia planting their footprints in the fresh concrete so that they can, I guess, leave their mark. You know, that this is them saying we were here. Uh, this is them saying that uh, the world might ignore us, but history won't. History will remember us. And it was also very much a, a way of Harry injecting a little bit of fun and a little bit of togetherness into a life that had become for the family quite difficult, quite quickly. You know, when they first arrived in this country, they had all the best hopes in the world. They had, you know, uh, an optimistic view of, of what life in this country could offer them. And then very quickly, they discover the hardships of living on an estate that's quite deprived uh, of living a day-to-day -day life that can be quite a struggle in many ways. Um, I think Harry and Lydia both have to grow up quite quickly when they arrive here. They're separated from mum for a long time. She's she's working very hard. She's a midwife. She's working long shifts. Um, often they're kind of left to their own devices. And you can imagine how uncomfortable and how scary it must be for them. Harry's only 11, Lydia's 14, newly arrived here. Uh, you know, the sense that they belong here hasn't had any chance to embed itself in them yet. They, they certainly don't feel safe all the time. Uh, they have each other. And whereas before, in their previous life in Ghana, where things were more familiar, easier, safer in lots of ways, they might have taken their their relationship to each other for granted. Mm. Their relationship was based a lot on kind of banter and uh, teasing of each other, and they weren't great at kind of expressing their emotions to each other. But here, they kind of they're required to stick together a lot more, and they come to understand just how much they need each other and um, how much they rely on each other's support. And then also at the end of the day, you know, they just want to have fun. They want to be able to, from time to time, just forget how hard things are outside their front door and just be kids. Mm -hmm. uh, so so this scene where uh, it's Lydia's birthday and Harry has has concocted this special surprise gift for her. He sees that there's some um, fresh concrete near the back of the flats because the council is doing some renovation work and he kind of takes her 
takes her around the back of the flats and says, you know, I, I've got this surprise for you. Jump in the concrete. Let's leave our footprints. Let, let's leave our mark and tell everyone that, that we were here. It's, uh, it's for me quite a touching moment. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I see it's a comment then on how special siblings can be in, in a really difficult or challenging um, moment in, in life. Certainly made, made, made me think about my relationship with my sister. That's that's for sure. Oh, really? Yes. Oh. Um, did the constant constant bickering and then realising <laughs> that actually, do you know what, there is a really deep rooted love and respect there. Yes. Um, and, and that comes out with Harry and Lydia too. Um, in terms of the other minor characters, perhaps unfairly there, me classifying Lydia as a minor character, but in terms of all of them do you think which one do you think holds the most significance and and why or just your comments on a couple of the minor characters if there's no one obvious one to choose from well actually a lot of the more peripheral characters are taken from people i knew on the estate either in childhood or as an adult while i was writing the book so they they all represent in some ways some of the misconceptions or prejudices that some of the other characters might have uh, or the prejudices that wider society might have. So, for example, Fagash Lil was based very much on a local character on the estate when I was growing up who, much like Fagash Lil in the book, you know, she used to walk around and pick up fag butts and put them in the pocket of her cardigan and uh, she was to us at the time as young kids she was the local witch she killed her husband and ate him in a pie but you know from the from the benefit of an adult perspective looking back i can see i could recognize that obviously she was somebody who had mental health issues that weren't being addressed uh who was very lonely who had a a, a backstory that none of us felt necessary to to interrogate so, you know, she was just a figure of fun. And I guess in a similar way, Terry Takeaway, based on, again, another character I knew, who, to all intents and purposes, was just the local, one of many of the local drunks and a bit of a loser, a bit of a waste of space. But, you know, that's what the kids in the book think of him, because they, they haven't given themselves the chance or don't feel that it's important to actually look beneath the veneer and interrogate his backstory uh whereas the character he's based on does have a backstory he was a soldier he uh, went and fought for his country he came back traumatized by his experiences and uh mental health support wasn't there for him and he drifted into alcoholism and uh became to all intents and purposes the local drunk the local loser but um, importantly, in the book, he ends up actually intervening quite importantly in, in Harry's story. You know, there's, there's a point where he comes to the rescue when Harry is, is being uh, threatened by the, the bullies, by the gang. And Terry Takeaway steps up and he protects him. And in, in some ways, he performs the, the role of surrogate father that Harry's dad isn't able to perform himself because he's not there. So I guess my message with him was underestimate people at your peril. Mm. You know, everybody that we pass in daily life who on the surface might seem to be a certain way or a certain type of person, they all have an interior life. They all have a, a history 
that explains how they appear to us and for for us to to give those people fair treatment and to recognize them as human beings requires that we just look a little bit deeper under the surface or just take a second look at those people that pass us by on a daily basis and don't don't write them off at the first opportunity yeah and it, and indeed the idea of the these characters having um a backstory fits i think as well with aunt sonia and makita who are often i think um paired by by pupils kind of group group together mm. you haven't um thought about giving any of those characters um their own story have you to explain that background do you know this is a question i'm asked often really over the years, <laughs> i have thought here and there about you know what would a pigeon english sequel look like mm. you know, if i were to revisit this world and these characters in in 10 years time or, or whatever what might i find because again writing it all through the perspective of harry who sees and understands a lot less than we do as readers it means that a lot of those more minor characters aren't really given their time in the spotlight they're kind of they're sketches and I, I there is a great temptation to i guess fill in some of those sketches and, and to uh present those characters in, in more detail and delve into their backstories um so perhaps perhaps one day if i run out of other ideas or, uh, if someone offers me some money for an anniversary sequel or something who knows i, I might delve into those characters because obviously it's still it's a community and it's a world that's very much informed by my experience and my history so it's it's always going to be a place that that's very close to my heart and there are an abundance of stories i could tell about the place I grew up in. So yeah, who knows, one day perhaps. Yeah, and indeed you'd have a, a ready-made group of readers, I'm, I'm sure, certainly from my, my classes. <laughs> <laughs> um, just uh, one one final thing really in terms of the book. Um, could you tell us a little bit about The Pigeon, um, it, the role that it plays, how you saw it, how it came to be in the novel as well? The Pigeon is a really interesting character for me because he tends to divide opinion there are readers who are kind of quite fond of the pigeon uh, and uh, enjoy his his time in the book. And there are others who feel that he kind of he gets in the way of the main narrative and they're, or they're not quite sure what what function he fulfills in the book. And I find that really interesting, the idea that there can be a character that there's no consensus about that can divide opinion like that. So I'm really glad I decided in the end to include him. At the beginning, in earlier versions of the book, the pigeon wasn't present as a character at all. It was actually all, the, the entire book was, was in Harry's voice. And I remember the origins of the pigeon were that one day uh, my agent was reading through the, the book for the final time before she was due to send it off to publishers. Mm. And she'd lived with the book as I had for a year by then. And she was giving it another read through and she called me up and said, I've got an idea for you, Stephen, just a suggestion. Now I'm really enjoying spending time with Harry. I think his voice is very engaging. I, I, I love him as a character. But I'm just playing devil's advocate and wondering if maybe some some readers might find him a little bit annoying. 
if it's just his voice all the way through, maybe some readers might want to break from him from time to time. And maybe that would be a good opportunity for you to include another voice or another perspective on things. So you go away and think about what that might be. So I did, and I was racking my brains about how I could introduce a new voice into the, mm. into the book. And I went through various ideas. I thought perhaps it could be the voice of Lydia through extracts from her diary so we could get more of an insight into her life and how she was dealing with things. Uh, then I thought perhaps I could introduce transcripts from the phone conversations that Harry was having with his dad so that maybe I could get more of an insight into life back home in Ghana and how his dad was coping with the separation and all of those things. Um, and then one day I was I think I was washing up in my kitchen and I looked out of the window and there was this one-legged pigeon hopping along outside my house. And my heart just went out to this little guy. I thought, oh no, bless him. You know, he's he's up against it. The, the odds are stacked against him. And I, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for an underdog. And I had this really kind of sentimental feeling towards this pigeon. And I thought, maybe there's maybe there's some way I can kind of introduce a pigeon as a character in the book. And I started thinking about Harry, you know, his his uh, connection to nature and how that in some ways had been severed when he arrived here. Back home, I imagined him being, you know, a nature boy, very much in love with the natural world. And he comes over to this country and finds himself on a council estate where he's surrounded by these tall buildings that must feel literally like the, the bars of a prison cell to him. He must feel very trapped in his new surroundings and uh, he's missing home a great deal as well. And I imagined that scene as I wrote it in the book where he's on his balcony and he looks up into the sky and he sees this pigeon flying past and some imaginative leap occurs. He, he thinks of this pigeon as, you know, the embodiment of the freedom that he himself is missing or has lost. Uh, things are already getting quite challenging in, in Harry's life here and he has no means of escape. And I imagine him wanting to, you know, experience that sense of being able to fly above his problems. Uh, so the pigeon developed as a character that he could have some kind of imaginative relationship with that would provide, I guess, a respite from his everyday struggles and worries. Yeah. Um, it also became clear quite quickly that through the, the pigeon's voice, I could comment on things that were happening in the book in a different way. You know, some of the, the forces and, and the issues that are surrounding Harry, he himself is too young and naive and perhaps not sophisticated enough to pick up on or to express whereas the pigeon in his very old and wise voice can comment on those things in a different way and can provide I guess an overview to the story so he emerged as this kind of guardian angel character I guess who uh, provides for Harry the the connection that he is missing the protection that he seeks as well and also allows me to just uh, comment on what's going on in the book in a slightly different different way to Harry. 
Yeah, absolutely. I can, I can see that. And and when you spoke at the beginning about this balance that Harry has between experience and innocence, I certainly think his relationship with, with that pigeon helps us perhaps um, hope have a hope that his innocence is, is maintaining or is carrying on. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for that. A really, really insightful um, discussion there just on the, on the challenges of growing up, um, who we surround ourselves with. Um, and, and I do think a call to action, too. Um, just one final thing. If you had to say something to teachers who are thinking about maybe changing and swapping um, <laughs> to include this on their specification, how, how would you how would you implore them to? If you could? <laughs> Oh, I certainly would, because my various school visits have, have become over the, the few years that I've been doing them, the highlight of my job. I, I'm, I'm just forever surprised and touched and inspired by the young people's response to the book. How, as we've said before, it kind of it reflects the world as they recognise it, how deeply they're engaged, not only in uh the issues in the book which they recognize but they're also in my experience very engaged in in harry's personal journey they they become very uh protective towards him mm. and i see their empathy just shining out of them when i talk to young people about their experience of the book i just there's a there's a very powerful attachment that they have to the characters um and i i, I can see without wishing to overstate it, how their the time they spend with the book is enriching them as people in terms of their their empathy and their regard for those characters in the book and how strongly they feel about them and how strongly they're able to reflect their own daily struggles in in the book. Um, and also, I hear that exam results and, and grades are are really encouraging when it comes to questions on this book. So uh, that's not to be sniffed at either. Um, <laughs> Appeal, I, I would really love it if, if more young people were, were exposed to the book. I really would. Indeed, as would I. And of course, <laughs> yes, there, the, uh, the, the, the mention of exam results definitely will uh, perk up a few ears. But thank you for writing a book that does provoke such empathy. And I, I can definitely second that as, as a teacher who's taught it, um, provokes such empathy and intrigue and, and excitement um, thank you. all at the same time. So thank you for writing it. And also, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. It's been a huge pleasure. Wonderful. Thank you.